All right, we're back in Second Peter today. Second Peter, we're going to be looking at more verses than we usually do today, but don't don't let that scare you. It's uh, I think we can get through them. Um, so we finished last week. We looked at we were in chapter two, and we looked at verses 1 through 3a. So we're going to pick it up in the second part of verse 3, and we're going to go down to the first part of verse 10 today. And the title of the message is, God Judges and Rescues. But for those of you who were here last week, just by way of review, remember very very quickly, in verses 1 through 3, in this, in this section of the letter, Peter begins to deal specifically with these false teachers. And we just looked at a few things last week at the reality of false teachers, false prophets in the Old Testament, false teachers in the New Testament, false teachers in our day, that it's just a reality and we need to be aware of that. That they're never going to go away. There's always going to be false teachers. And they, they bring in what Peter says secretly they're, because they're very sneaky Destructive heresies. And there's all kinds of different destructive heresies. We could spend hours talking about all of the different destructive heresies. But that's the whole point about them is they are destructive. And they lead to eternal destruction. And so that's really what Peter reminded us of last week. And these particular false teachers we looked at, they denied the one who bought them. In other words, who they professed. To buy them. We talked about how they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ, these particular false teachers. And what the sad reality was that we saw, and is true today as well, that many people follow after false teachers. The quote, Jamie, that we were talking about, that I just I just happened to find on Facebook. Martin Lloyd Jones said something along the lines of they uh, you know they there's always there's never a narrow gate with false teachers. It's always a broad road. And it's, it's the many, the big crowds that follow them. Because why? Their teaching appeals to the flesh. Their teaching doesn't make an unbeliever feel uncomfortable. It actually, it actually is very attractive to the unregenerate because they get with their sinful flesh. Whether it's a watered-down gospel or whether it's just, hey, you're going to get rich. You're going to get wealthy. You send me your money. So all these things appeal to the flesh. It attracts big crowds, which is very, very, very sad. And so that brings us into our, into our text today, really by way of introduction. Let's just look at the second part of verse 3, 3b. In verse 3, it says, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Remember we talked about that last week. They're liars. And the very people that they're meant to minister to, they take advantage of. Which I believe that that's really... Can you imagine how angry Christ is at His church? Because many, many, many genuine Christians get abused by these men. But they exploit people with their, with their lies. And then, and then in the second part of that verse is where we're going to pick up today. It says their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep, beloved. That's really what we're going to be looking at today. If you ever wondered and you see people, again, specifically we're talking about false teachers, but just the wicked in general. Doesn't it seem like they just get away with it? And God's people many times suffer 
And they're just, they're, they're wealthy and it just seems like nothing goes wrong. And they got everything going for them. And he says, their judgment from long ago is not idle. That just means eternal judgment lies wide awake for these men, for these deceivers. It's really the language of Jude 4. Jude and 2 Peter are very, very similar. Very similar. Listen to Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what these guys are doing, right? When we see their ungodly lifestyle, they deny, they refuse the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and it leads to, it leads to a license to sin, right? Sin in the name of grace. And that's exactly opposite of what God's Word says. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So have you guys ever wondered that though? Just, uh, just about, about when you look into this world and you see the, the, the wicked. And I, and I know you guys know the truths of the Bible, but do you ever just find yourself going, man, is justice ever going to be served? Just the wicked, it seemed like they just get away with it and get away with it and get away with it. Just to be reminded of that, guys, turn to Psalm 73. To be reminded of this truth, turn to Psalm 73. And God's Word will remind us that God is not asleep, beloved. He is not asleep. Really just... Echoing what Peter and Jude is saying, this Psalm 73. This is really our Old Testament scripture reading today as an introduction to this message. Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph. My Bible says, the heading, the end of the wicked contrasted with that of the righteous. He says this Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore His people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children when I pondered to understand this. It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. 
How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, You will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before You. Nevertheless, I am continually with You. You have taken hold of my right hand. With Your counsel You guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but You? And beside You I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from You will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to You. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all Your works. I think it just goes right in line with what Peter is saying today and what Jude is saying as well, beloved. In the words of Peter in our text today, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And of course, he's telling that to comfort these readers that he's writing to. These false teachers are running havoc and many people are following after them. And that's the way it is many times, guys. It's like God always has a remnant, right? Those who just want Christ. Just want to be faithful to Christ. And even within the church, even within the the modern evangelical church, it just seems many, many people are following after false teachers and watered down gospels and... And so let this be an encouragement to you though, guys. Just that, that God, He's not asleep. Okay? He's not. When you see wickedness, just it, just it just closes in on us, it seems. God is in control. God is sovereign. And God is just. And He deal with it. And as we'll see, He will also rescue the godly. Okay, the proposition I have for you today, really from the text today that I want to speak to you about and, and further, further um, explain through the sermon is this. The Holy Spirit, beloved, assures you, okay? I want this to be, it's directed to, to you, God's people, okay? The Holy Spirit, from His Word, assures you from the Old Testament that God will punish the unrighteous and rescue the godly, okay? So it's meant to be an encouragement, for God's people. So we're going to break that down. The Holy Spirit assures you from the Old Testament that God will punish the unrighteous and rescue the godly. How does He do this? Or how did He do this? First of all, we're going to see God did this. And our first point, God judged. That's what we're going to see. God judged. We're going to look at three Old Testament examples that Peter gives us. And it's for God's people to be encouraged. God doesn't change, okay? God doesn't change. If you see in verse 4, the very first word in verse 4 is for. Okay, that means something. For, and then it's, that, that thought's going to continue. For if God, and it's, it's, that thought's going to continue down through verse 8 until he gets to verse 9, and then there's a contrast, then, okay? He's going to say for, and he's going to give us three Old Testament examples. And then we're going to see, because of this, then this. Okay? So keep that in mind. 
So the first thing we're going to see, how does God assure you from the Old Testament that He will punish the unrighteous and rescue the godly? First of all, because He judged. And He judged. First of all, that we see in verse 4, the angels. He judged the angels. Now this is one of those verses, church, that there's multiple interpretations. Okay, I'm going to go through them real quickly. Because regardless of, regardless of which interpretation we hold to, it doesn't affect the argument in any way whatsoever. But I'm going to give them to you real quick. It says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now some, for example, in the commentaries that I use, for example, Albert Barnes, who was in the 1700s, he was a Presbyterian. He taught at Princeton University. Excellent, excellent commentaries. Excellent exegete. Him as well as John Calvin. Basically the older guys, I'll just say that. The older guys, they simply view this. They remind, it, they remind us that it simply says they sinned. And that we can assume that it's discussing the revolt in heaven where the angels sinned and they were cast out of heaven. Uh, let, me, let me read a verse to you. We're going to refer to this two or three times. Jude 6. Jude and 2 Peter seems to be parallel passages in many ways. Jude 6 says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That, that Albert Barnes, John Calvin, and others say that it doesn't really specify, so there's no reason to speculate. We can assume that it's discussing the revolt in heaven. Through their pride and the rebellion, they got kicked out of heaven. And that a certain number were confined to what this, this word says, hell. That's not the final judgment. The word is Tartarus. Tartarus or Tartarus. It means an abode for the wicked. And this is the only time the word is used in the New Testament. It's not the final, the final place of judgment. But it's a, a temporary abode so to speak. This word is borrowed, this word Tartarus, which, where we get the word hell in this verse, it's borrowed from Greek mythology. And it's used in Jewish literature. Namely, the book of Enoch. Okay? So that's, that's one interpretation. Basically, the guys from two, three, four hundred years ago, they just leave it at that. They said there's no reason to worry too much about it because it doesn't say. It just says they sin. Some of the other guys, John MacArthur, Thomas Schreiner, and others, they think Peter is following the Jewish tradition taught in 1 Enoch. I'm going to read a couple passages to you. I'm going to move quickly because we don't need to get bogged down here. But just to tie this together, they think... Let me, let me read Genesis 6, 1-4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterward were the sons of... When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men... These were the mighty men who were the men of old, men of renown. Jewish tradition in, in the book of First Enoch teaches 
Jewish, in Jewish literature, Jewish tradition, this book of Enoch, they taught that, that Jude, let me read Jude 6 and 7, that Jude was explaining, was referencing the Genesis account I just read. Now let me read this, then I'll explain, and we'll move on. In Jude 6 and 7 it says this, The angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds, under darkness, for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Okay? So the one interpretation that Albert Barnes Calvin give is it's just we don't know for sure, so we can assume it's referring to the angels who were in the rebellion were kicked out of heaven. But others think there's more to it than that. And I think there might be that, that what I just read in Genesis 6 and in Jude, uh, in the book of Enoch, basically it's saying that, that in, in Jude, these, these angels who did not keep their domain is a reference to Genesis 6, 1 and 4 where possibly certain fallen angels, maybe, I think MacArthur says, would have possessed mortal men and then had sex with women but somehow there's been a violation of the boundaries that God had set for them. Okay? Either way, it doesn't matter. Because these are mysteries. These are some of the most difficult texts in the Bible. And so, and, and, and even in, in Jude uh, verse 7, if that interpretation is true, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. So we know Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in gross immorality. And so the Jewish tradition in the book of Enoch is that is that what's going that is what's going on. It's the angels referred to in Genesis 6, the fallen angels that indulged in gross immorality. So but okay, these are the two main interpretations given. I don't want to speculate too much because the bottom line is this, guys. The bottom line is this. That whenever this account is speaking of, the bottom line is this, is they would not submit to God's authority and were punished. That's what you and I need to take from this. These angels, back in Peter now, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, regardless of when it is, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment they rebelled against God and they were punished and they were punished they were placed in the NAS says pits of darkness the idea is it's a loss of freedom in a place of confinement okay it's a temporal place it's not the final judgment it says they're reserved for judgment it's much like a uh, whoever these fallen angels are it's like guilty prisoners awaiting final sentence is what Peter's saying they're awaiting final sentence. They're awaiting execution. Much like in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man goes to Abraham's bosom. It's paradise, but it's not the final heaven. It's not new heavens and new earth. The, the, the rich man went to torment. It's not the final judgment, but he's in torment. Much like that. Okay? So what's the point of all this? What is Peter saying here? If God did not spare... The angels, okay? If God punished these angels who were once holy angels, 
If they didn't get away with it, then neither were these false teachers. That's his point. Okay? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a greater to the lesser. Even the once holy angels who were in heaven with God are reserved for judgment because they rebelled against God. So that's the first thing we see. That you can be assured from the Old Testament that God will punish the unrighteous. The first example is because He punished the angels. They're reserved for judgment. These fallen angels that rebelled. Secondly, in verse 5, you can be assured because, of the, because God judged the ancient world in verse 5. And God did not spare the ancient world, but, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we know this is referring to the flood. The ancient world. God did not spare the ancient world. Some, some characteristics of this ancient world that he's describing. You don't have to turn there. Listen to Genesis 6, 5 and verses 11 and 12. This is that ancient world. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. You know, when I read that text, I think of the 10 o'clock news, to be honest with you. That sounds like our day. In many ways, it doesn't sound like things are getting better to me. It sounds like our day. The intention of man's heart is evil from the youth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Just corrupt. It's corrupt. And it is similar to our day. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we're living in those kind of days. He brought a flood. He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Think about that, guys. All but eight people. All but eight people. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Just think of that. The rest of the world perished. I don't think we really can comprehend that. And, and who are the ungodly? Or, or yeah, how, you, how do you define the ungodly when it says He brought a flood of the world on the ungodly? The ungodly are those who have a lack of reverence for or fear of God. They despise authority. They despise the authority of God Almighty. Again, this is our day. This is a picture of our day. And what did God do? He destroyed the world except eight people. Beloved, the, the flood functions as a type of, of, of universal judgment. It's a picture of the end. When God is coming... In vengeance to this world. So what does this tell us? First of all, we saw that He didn't even spare the angels when they sinned, right? It's a comparison of the greater to the lesser. The once holy angels. What does this tell us? This tells us numbers don't matter. That's what this tells us. Numbers don't matter. Don't you know, you've probably seen it, I've seen it, that the ungodly, they take confidence that they have numbers with them. They have all their friends with them. And you're just a weird Christian 
with a narrow message that doesn't change the truth. That's what this tells us. Numbers don't matter. The wicked will not escape. No matter how wide the road is and no matter how many are on that road, it doesn't change the truth. And that's what the flood reminds us of. How do you think Noah felt? We may get frustrated because a family member doesn't listen to us. How do you think Noah felt preaching for 120 years and being laughed at and mocked? Didn't change the truth, did it? That the flood came just like he said it would. What's the point? God condemned the entire ancient world except eight people. So how will these men, that Peter's saying to his readers... And in our day, how will these men, how will these deceivers, how will these false teachers, and how will any unrepentant sinner escape? And the answer is, they will not. They will not. So you can be assured, beloved, that God will punish the unrighteous. Because He did not spare the angels. He did not spare the ancient world. And in verse 6, we see our third example from the Old Testament. And if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. The third one is He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know what that area was known for, beloved, in that day? It was known for its rich, fertile land. It was beautiful. That's why Lot went that way when Abraham gave him the choice. It was, well, hey, what's the saying in our day? And, it, and it's, it's, it's okay to say that. We all have probably used it. And when you see something, some beautiful land, some mountains, where we say it's God's country. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. God's the creator. But what does this tell us right off the bat? That even a place as beautiful and fertile as that region of the world the same would be true in our day. If that area that's beautiful, if it abounds in sin, no matter how beautiful it is, God will not hesitate to reduce it to ashes. And that's what we see in the text. Why did God judge these cities, beloved? And with what kind of judgment? Have you ever heard that argument? Have you ever heard the argument from the... You know, it, these kind of things are getting more and more in our day, in our secular land, that... The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't because of homosexuality, but they were just inhospitable. Turn back to Jude 7 again. Jude 7, guys, Jude, not chapter 7, verse 7. There's, there's a couple truths that are tucked away into this text that it tells us. We don't have to wonder. This tells us why God judged these cities and with what kind of judgment? All in this one verse. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that were around them, there were other cities, and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Says real clearly why they were judged. Gross sexual immorality. And it wasn't only fire from heaven, beloved. It was fire from heaven, God's temporal judgment, but eternal fire that they were judged with. 
They went to hell. And it's, and, and it's meant to be an example for Peter's readers and for us. Now, a reminder. Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to be an example. A warning. A warning to unrepentant sinners. That's what we're seeing. It's meant to be a deterrent. An example of what will happen. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to be. But our world laughs at it and mocks it. We live in modern day Sodom. Do you realize that? The LGBTQ movement is worldwide now. Literally worldwide. We live in many ways in modern Sodom and Gomorrah. It's shoved down literally almost the entire world's throat. And you're considered radical if you don't agree with it. Beloved, God has not changed. But it's meant to be a deterrent of what will happen. That's what it's meant to be. It sells us in the Word. You know, it's much like the death penalty is meant to be. When proper justice would be handed out to somebody who takes an innocent life, it's meant to be a deterrent. Don't do this. This is what's going to happen. But there's no fear of our law. There's no fear of justice because most of the time justice isn't served. You just go out and take somebody's life and maybe 50 years later you'll be convicted and, and put to death. But it's, that's what these things are meant. If you take the life because we, because we are made in God's image. That's why God established it. But that's just an example. This is meant to be a deterrent. Repent. Don't, don't continue in your ungodliness and your sexual immorality. This is what will happen. What's the point here? He reduced the cities to ashes as an example to the ungodly. Continue in your ungodliness and you will perish. You will perish. In the words of Jesus, unless you repent, you will perish. That's what Peter's saying, beloved. So he's telling these readers, right? He's telling these these. These believers that you can be assured, as the same with you guys here today, you can be assured that the ungodly will not escape. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how small of a remnant it seems the true church is, the wicked will not escape. They will not escape. And these are examples Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down on in Scripture as Scripture. To, to encourage you, first of all, that the wicked will not escape. That you can be assured that they will be punished. And secondly, our second point, not only did God judge, but God rescued. God rescued. And we see two examples from that. Back up in verse 5, we see first, our first example is Noah. Okay? He says, and, and, and remember back up in verse 4, we're still seeing four. For if God did these things. Now we're seeing these two individuals that He preserved or rescued. But God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. He preserved Noah. He preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Genesis 6-9 describes Noah as a righteous man who walked with God. I love those descriptions of Noah. I think Enoch 
in the Old Testament, men who walked with God. That's what it means to be a Christian, guys. We walk with God, right? How's your walk going? That's where we get that from. How's your walk? Noah was a righteous man. How was Noah righteous? By trusting in God. By believing God like anybody else who was made righteous. He walked with God. And so we can, we can know that as a righteous man who walked with God, obviously, he would have been a communicator, a warner of, 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 um, to his neighbors to get right with God. Hebrews 11.7 says this, because an heir, because an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, describing Noah, he was an heir of righteousness which is according to faith. So obviously, he was made righteous through faith in God. And it says, in reverence, in reverence, he prepared an ark. In reverence. That's exactly opposite as the ungodly. They have no reverence for God. They have no fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In Romans 3, that's why it says men and women can live in all of this filth and and deceit and anger and violence because there's no fear of God before their eyes. But Noah, in reverence, prepared an ark. That means in reverence, he obeyed what God told him to do because he loved God. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's an ongoing joke I see in, in public preaching. I've also heard it from teenagers in our neighborhood. Oh, I love Jesus. They say that mockingly. I love Jesus. They just walk by. I love Jesus. Beloved, that is what is... This is a demonstration that Noah really did love Jesus, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. They say it mockingly. But it's nothing to mock. Jesus said, those who love me, obey me. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is accursed. He is damned. I pity people when they say that mockingly. They say it mockingly. Oh, I love Jesus. Because they don't understand who Christ is. They think He's a little... Like I used to have a false idea of who Christ was. I I used to think I could sin and blaspheme God and live in all kinds of immorality. And I had my little phony Jesus that I believed in. But then when we realize who Christ is, that He is Lord and God of all, that His eyes are like a flame of fire, that He sees into their soul, oh, I just... It's my prayer and desire that they would fear Christ because they're going to face Him. They're going to face Him one day. But Noah had this reverence. And he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. He obeyed God. He built a boat, guys. And it never rained. He built a boat and preached for 120 years. What would all the pragmatic teachers say about that? Where's the results, Noah? But God says he's a preacher of righteousness. He is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the Hall of Faith. Because of his faithfulness. Because of his faith. Knowing the terror of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade men. That could not be further or any better exemplified than in Noah. He knew the terror of the Lord was coming. The flood of God's wrath is coming and he was faithful. 
For 120 years. That is astounding. Can you imagine the mockery he faced? And didn't see any results. Just his family, right? His wife, some of their kids, in-laws. Their sons and their wives, eight people total, were rescued. They were preserved, the text says. From what? The wrath of God. And how were they preserved? By means of the ark. Another picture of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what the ark is. The ark really existed. It's a historical fact, but it's a picture of something even greater. Wow, how could it be any greater than being rescued from a worldwide flood? Christ is greater, right? The song, Christ is greater. Christ is the greater ark. The only way to be preserved and rescued from the eternal wrath of God is to be in Christ. Not a boat, but in Jesus Christ. We, we, we find our protection and our refuge in Him. In Him. We beg people to find refuge in Christ. And we are helpless to convince them. We tell them, we beg, we pray. We pray earnestly that God will open their eyes, that they will see their hopeless condition like Noah begged these people. God's judgment is coming. You need to repent, but they didn't listen. So, beloved, be encouraged. That's Peter's point in this, writing to these believers. Be encouraged that no matter the size of the crowd, think about the size of the crowd in Noah's day. It was everybody against him, except some in his family. Be encouraged, no, no, no matter the size of the crowd on the wide road, no matter the size of the apostate church, when it says many follow after their sensuality, God will rescue His own. God will preserve you to the end. God will rescue His own just like He did Noah and his family. Amen? Amen. That's meant to encourage you, beloved. That's meant to comfort you. When you see what just seems like, man, we're a minority, it seems like. And it's just apostatizing and wickedness. These are meant to encourage us. God does preserve us to the end, but He uses His promises in His Word to do that. He uses His warnings in His Word. Isn't that amazing? That God, He sustains us to the end, but He uses His warnings not to apostatize, to keep us from apostatizing. It's a, but that's, that's the mystery of God. He is sovereign. But He uses His Word as a means to protect us. And so, first we see that He rescued Noah. We can find comfort in that. And He also rescued Lot in verses 7 and 8. And if He rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what He saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You know, in the Old Testament, guys, uh, Genesis doesn't say much about Lot being righteous. It doesn't. It doesn't say it at all. If this text wasn't in here, I wouldn't think Lot was very righteous. 
He made some questionable decisions, if you're familiar with Lot's life, like offering his daughters to the lustful sodomites in that account who wanted to have sexual relations with the angels. Remember that? He wanted to give them his daughters instead. Or what about his shameful behavior of getting drunk after they had been rescued, which resulted with his daughters having sex with him? Wow, that doesn't sound too righteous, does it? Beloved, we can even learn from that, okay? Because we, we read that when, when it says He's righteous, when we know those accounts that are in Scripture, we read that and we're shocked many times when it refers to Him as righteous lot, even to the point where we're confused. But brother, let me ask you this, by way of just self-examination, really by way of humbling. What about you? You think there's anything in your life ever that if God recorded in Holy Scripture that was in Scripture for all the generations to read that somebody may go, He was righteous? That's kind of terrifying, isn't it? These are just two accounts of a man's life that for God's purposes, He's recorded in it for us. But it says He's righteous three times. In these two verses. Three times. In verse 7, righteous lot. In verse 8, that righteous man. And then in verse 8, his righteous soul. So I think the Holy Spirit is trying to say, he was righteous. This can also remind us, beloved, that that this is an example of where the New Testament is the best commentary on the Old Testament. You've heard me say that many times. So at this point, there's no reason... God clearly says this man was righteous. <clears throat> so it says he was oppressed. We, 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 can, we can see even a few other words that describe what it would be like to be somebody who's righteous living in this environment. It says in verse 7 that he was, he was oppressed. If he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the central conduct of these unprincipled men. That means he was wearied. His soul was burdened. By the, by the extreme sexual immorality of these unrestrained men. Again, what about you? What about me? Are you oppressed? Is your, is your soul wearied or burdened by the sins of others? The sin, we see the same stuff in our culture. So before we jump on, before we jump on Lot, we need to examine our own hearts. Is our, is our soul burdened by the sins of our culture? Many of the same kind of sins? What about your own sins? Beloved, the unregenerate loves sin. I think we could all agree with that, right? The unregenerate loves sin. They take pleasure in sin, but not the righteous. Not the righteous. So we can see that. We can just see in his reaction to what's going on around him that he is a righteous man. And then it says in verse 8, what he saw and heard. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. What he saw and heard. Isaiah 3.9 offers a little bit of commentary about Sodom. And Isaiah is talking about the Israelites who were living in sin 
But it says, they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. So that's what Peter's referring to. It was open sin in Sodom. And he saw it day after day. And it it says what he, he not only saw it, but he heard it. Just the things he would have seen, the things he heard, tormented this man. In other words, his heart was grieved. And not just an occasional thing, but it says day after day. Day after day, he was, he was tormented over the constant, open, shameless sin of Sodom. That's what's going on here. And so, beloved, are you grieved like that? Are you grieved like that? By the immorality that has engulfed our culture? We should be. We should be. If not, we need to pray and ask God to help us be more sensitive to it. We, because now what happens? You don't have to go out to the pride parade. It's on our phones. It's on the TV. It's on commercials. It's shoved down your throat. And it should grieve us. It should grieve us. Because we do live in a similar place in our day, no doubt. But Lot's righteous behavior, beloved, really simple. Lot's righteous behavior was a demonstration that he was indeed justified and declared righteous by the righteousness of Christ. He had put his faith in God and through the the future death of the Messiah on the cross, righteousness was credited to his account and his lifestyle demonstrated. His life demonstrated. And so God used his angels, beloved, to rescue righteous Lot from the fire of God's wrath. That's what we're seeing in this third example. And God will rescue all who have trusted Jesus Christ from the fire of God's wrath. That's what we see. God rescued Noah, preserved Noah and his family. God rescued Lot in the midst when he was bringing judgment upon the wicked. And He will do the same for us, guys. He will hold us fast to the very end. Because He is faithful even when we're not. And then lastly, I told you in the beginning that the Holy Spirit assures you from the Old Testament that God will punish the unrighteous and rescue the godly. We looked at how He did that by giving us these Old Testament examples, by judging the wicked and rescuing the righteous. And now I'll ask this question in our third point. We'll answer it. Why does He assure you? Why does He assure you? What's the point of assuring you? Why does He assure you? Our third point, so that you can be comforted with these things. God, the Holy Spirit, wants you and I to be comforted with what's said in these texts. Okay, No matter how crazy things get in our world, God will deal with the wicked, He will deal with the unrighteous, and He will rescue His own. That will never change. Okay? That'll never, that truth will never change. So that you will be comforted. Verses 9 and 10a. So here we are, guys. Verse 9. If this is so, in verse 4, if, and then everything we've looked at, then, now we're to the part in verse 9, then this is true. Verse 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment 
for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. What's the point of the three illustrations we just looked at, beloved? Assurance for God's people. Assurance of deliverance that He will deliver the righteous and assurance of God's judgment on the unrighteous. That's what this is. That's Peter's argument. He knows how to rescue the ungodly, he says. And I stated this earlier, beloved. This is from apostatizing. He knows how to rescue us. He knows how to keep us. Because what happens? Those who apostatize end up being judged by God, falling under the judgment of God. He knows how to rescue us from that ever happening. I quoted this verse last week, and I'm going to do it again today because it's so beautiful. And I would love for you to be familiar with this passage because it's God's saving. It's His keeping power. In Jeremiah 32.40, He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of Me in their hearts so that they will not turn from Me. Do you hear that promise? We're not going to turn from God not because we're so good and we're so faithful, but because of God. God has put His fear of Himself in the hearts of His children through the Holy Spirit, through the new birth, through regeneration. And we won't fall away. We will, as our confession says, persevere unto the end. Because God is the one who preserves us to the end. And so yes, He does know how to rescue and deliver us from all temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises. He will not allow you to be tempted, but but what you're... uh, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will provide a way of escape. He's there with us when we're tempted. When we go through trials. But this is talking about even something bigger than that. This is speaking more of a falling away. It's similar to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.18. He writes to Timothy, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. God will bring us safely, beloved, to the very end. He will hold me fast. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. And so, beloved, these false teachers, these false teachers that Peter is describing here, he's comforting his readers. These false teachers and the many who follow their sensuality on the wide gate, going down the wide road, they may be prospering now, but judgment is coming. That's Peter's point. They're prospering now, but judgment day is coming in verse 7 in chapter 3. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And he says in verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. They despise authority. That's one of the things that characterizes false teachers, and ungodly men in general, they despise authority. They despise authority. Whether it be the false teachers that Peter is describing 
or those who followed their sensuality that we looked at in verse 3. These rebels, it says, who are indulged in and literally follow their lusts. Their lusts lead them. Their lusts dictate where they go. They follow their lusts. They do so. Why do they do these things? Because they despise authority. They despise authority. All authority. Ungodly people despise all authority. They despise parental authority. They despise the authority of the law. But ultimately, it's reserved for they despise the one who has all authority. And that is Jesus Christ. They despise Him. They refuse His Lordship. They deny His Lordship. They refuse His Lordship. And we're reminded in Acts 17, verse 30, God says this, that He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Who's He going to judge the world through? Through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, to the whole world, by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest news for the believer. But it is the worst nightmare for the ungodly. Because by this very demonstration that He has risen from the dead, God has furnished proof through that event that He will judge the entire world through this man. And that's what Peter's saying here. God will deal with the ungodly, beloved, but He will rescue the godly. We can take comfort in that. You can be comforted in that fact when you see the world caving in around you and you see those who you thought loved Christ abandon the faith, maybe for a false teacher, or or just abandon the faith completely. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by the numbers. God judged the entire world except eight people. And He rescued the godly. God judged even the angels who rebelled. But He will rescue you if you're in Christ. So it's always, as always, the, the plea with the ungodly is to confess Christ as Lord. To confess Him as Lord. He is the only hope. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. We're to confess Him as Lord. We're to repent of our sins. And we're to trust in Him alone by faith. And we have God's promise. If we do so, we shall be saved and we shall be rescued. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank You. God, for these sobering truths, Lord, but but encouraging truths, Lord, that You will... You will deal with the ungodly. You've given us three examples in Your Word from the Old Testament, Father. That the angels would not get away with their sin. That the ancient world of Noah's day would not get away with their sin. And that those in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding regions, even though it was a beautiful part of the world, it says You reduced it to ashes. But Lord, You rescued Noah. You rescued the godly. You rescued righteous Lot, Father. 
So Lord, I beg You today, Father, to comfort Your people with these truths, that they will apply these truths to their heart, that they will never be discouraged when they, when they look at the numbers in our world of the ungodly as compared to the righteous, but that we have a sure hope, God. We have a sure hope, and it's found in Jesus Christ, who bore the fires of hell on the cross, who bore every last drop of Your wrath, God, on the cross for all of those who would believe, for all of those who would repent, and for all of those who would trust Him. Father, we thank You for that promise. We thank You for these promises, Lord, that are in Your Word. The same book that says just a few verses ago that we need to be reminded of these things. Thank You, Father, for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.